The Porsche Podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the Porsche Podcast. My name is Sebastian Rudolph, and I'm Vice President Communications, Sustainability and Politics at Porsche. With this audio magazine, we would like to share an insight into the world of Porsche and deal with some exciting issues. We've set up our podcast studio today in the Porsche Museum in Stuttgart-Sufenhausen. From here, we have a beautiful view of the Porsche Platz with a sculpture in the center three white 911 sports cars reaching into the sky. Today's episode deals with a highly topical subject and an integral part of the Porsche DNA. It's about a special myth embodied by two letters, GT, road cars with racing credentials. To get to the bottom of these high-performance sports cars and the legend behind them, we have two experts as guests, Frank Steffen Walliser and Mark Weber. Before we start, we'll introduce the two of them briefly. The career of Frank Steffen Walliser, born in 1969, has taken the racing line without any unscheduled pit stops. After studying mechanical engineering, the Stuttgart native arrived at Porsche in 1995 as an intern, graduate student and then doctoral candidate. From 2003 to 2008, he held the position of General Manager of Motorsport Strategies. In October 2014, after working as Project Manager for the 918 Spider, he was given the additional responsibility of Head of Porsche Motorsports for Worldwide GT Motorsports and for GT Production Sports Cars. In 2019, Frank Steffen Walliser took over the 911 and 718 model series, including the GT cars. Apart from his job, spending time with his wife and his two sons is his top priority. His private car is a 911, an air-cooled 993. Mark Webber was born in 1976 in New South Wales, Australia. He began his racing career in karting at the age of 12. As a 19-year-old, he left his Australian hometown with the clear goal of developing his racing career in England. He drove Formula 3 and Formula 3000 and earned a place in the Mercedes sports car program, his entry for the GT class. Mark was forced to withdraw after a serious accident at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The tide turned with a successful Formula 1 career, during which Weber achieved nine Grand Prix victories, 13 pole positions and finished third in the World Drivers' Championship in 2010, 2011 and 2013. In 2013, he finally found his home at Porsche. As early as 2015, he followed this up with the World Championship title at the FIA World Endurance Championship, WEC, in the Le Mans Prototype 919 Hybrid. Mark Webber ended his active racing career at the end of 2016 and has been a Porsche brand ambassador ever since. Frank and I are in the studio today while Mark joins us via video call from Australia. Hi Frank, hi Mark, happy to have you. Hi Sebastian, good morning. Hi Sebastian. Frank, let's start with you. I heard that your favorite holiday destination is Australia. <laughs> so how is it to drive cars down under? Oh Well, that's uh, a long time ago Then I was in Australia. It was our honeymoon, so um, some years ago. Yeah, it was a good experience. I had a good mood there. It was a good time. I enjoyed Fraser Island. I hope so, Frank. 
Yes. Well, that's 50 kilometers from where I'm sitting. So uh, it's very, not even that actually, probably 15 kilometers. So uh, yeah, we have to get you back out here, Frank. I will come. So um, Frank, you are responsible for 9-11, 7 models. And before that, you were also head of Porsche Motorsport for several years. So tell us, what do the letters GT mean to you? Well, if I'm honest, sometimes it's giant trouble. But uh, <laughs> GT is, meanwhile, uh, such an important part of Porsche and especially of the Porsche sports cars as it developed over many, many years, for sure, by the original meaning, Gran Turismo. It's the sports car category where we are in from racing it for many, many years. It's also an international racing category. But in the case of Porsche, I think it's way more uh, meanwhile. It's really the DNA of the company. It's the DNA also of the 911. It melts everything down, what the 911 and the sports car is about. And if we are very proud on the product, if we feel... Now it's, it's worse to put the stickers on. We say it's a GT car. And tell us something about the people behind. Well, what's the mindset of the people working to make a, for instance, 911 GT3 even better and better and better over the years? I think that's maybe a big difference also to other companies. GT within Porsche is not only the product, it's not only the letters on the car, it's also the team and the spirit. It's a small group, it's an integral part of Porsche Motorsport, so where we have race cars and street cars in a combination, same people working on this, and the spirit of this team. And I will not say that in, in other parts of Porsche we have a different spirit, but I think it, it really is a very focus team and at the end of the day it's a lot about performance and it's really pushing the boundaries it's making the next cool car and as always it's lap times it's drivability it's nurburgring that's such an important uh, racetrack for us as a well to measure the results of all the work but i will underline it's also the team spirit team spirit mark you also know gt cars not from the engineering side but from the race driver's side. What memories do you have when you think about GT races? Yeah, well, Sebastian, I was very young in my career when I raced uh, GT cars, and it was still at a pretty high level, actually. So for me, it was a tough initiation because there was a huge endurance factor to it because I came from single-seater racing in the junior categories, and then you go into endurance racing, and it's incredible the uh, As Frank touched on, the team spirit, the momentum, the sleep deprivation, the passion, the drive, and the teamwork and the trust. Ultimately, you have to have two or three drivers working together. So the transparency is absolutely crucial. And I think that there's so many small hurdles when you're on the racetrack that can bring you undone. And all of your preparation and effort can be found out very, very easily if you're not prepared and organized. So I was so fortunate to have some exposure that young in my career and I put tremendous discipline into my racing. I was lucky to work with good people. And I think that's, you know, as the cornerstone of the link between what we do on the racetrack in that type of that style of racing and then into the streetcars is pivotal, particularly for a brand like Porsche, because we are the highest bar that is totally possible when it comes to the build quality, the reliability and all the key uh, you know, tolerances and areas that we want to focus on from track to street. And I'm completely confident that no other brand has the ability that we do with Porsche in that transition. You're talking about the highest bar with your racing experience. What kind of tips can you provide to engineers to set the highest bar even higher? Well, naturally, 
That's a marriage that has to happen. Obviously, drivers work in one department, but obviously we have to work with lots of different departments because they are very important for us. So, you know, as gluing the challenge together, what are we trying to do? And Frank touched on it before. It's all about performance. It's orientated around, you know, the stopwatch never lies, ever. And the trophy cabinet's also important. So, you know, when you've got those two things that's measuring your performance, the competition keeps you on your toes. So, for our relationship with the engineers, sometimes it can be stressed because sometimes they're measuring certain, you know, components on the car or whether it's aerodynamic or brake temperatures or engine parameters or gearbox. And those things, yes, need to be measured and they're incredibly, you know, the detail that goes into those is phenomenal, but we are the end user and we have to be confident in putting the car on the limit repeatedly and have the consistency with that. So. It's often sometimes a beautiful marriage. Sometimes it can be a bit strained, but we've all got the same common goal, and that is performance and making a better product that we can push to the limits and have champagne in our veins at the end of the results. And the stopwatch never lies. I keep this in mind. Frank, let's talk about the transfer from motorsport to series production. And how does this exactly work? I mean, different teams, different angles. How can you... Yeah, connect the dots to a powerful team that at the end wins victories. Well, for sure, a GT streetcars, that is big teamwork. And we have a, I always call it a natural technology transfer. Because if the same guys are working on an RSR in the same aero tunnel, and on the other hand are working on a GT streetcar, they do not forget something when they a switch between the different challenges. For sure, they know the boundaries, what's possible. Once it's street homologation, on the other side, it's technical regulations from a racing series. But the methods, the tools they are using, also the spirit they have, that's exactly the same. And I think that's a big driver of bringing innovations. And if the same technical deciding board is sitting together and they say, if we put a double wishbone front axle in a GT3, we have a big benefit on our race car. And maybe we can use the parts for the very first time on the race car and then transfer it to the street car. And this has not to be organized. And I think that's the key point. I will not say it just happens, but the surrounding is designed that it can happen and it happens. You touched the word innovations and that brings me to the word heritage. So innovations, timeless design, it all has a foundation called heritage. Frank, do you remember any Porsche GT models um, the genes of which still point the way forward today? From my perspective, it starts really in the 50s because GTCA was always light, relatively small. And in the Porsche case, it was, and that's maybe part of the spirit that is still in the company. In the 50s, it was the big players. It was the Ferraris and the British cars, big engines and all not possible for Porsche. So Porsche made small cars, relatively small engines, but very nimble cars, good drivability, very good endurance capabilities. And then it made the work through. This is still part of the spirit. And we have we are iconic cars, GT cars, a 904 GTS, still one of the most beautiful GT cars ever. And then for sure the big variety and the long list of iconic 911 variants. And honestly, I'm proud that Over the last 20 years, there have also been some of the cars that are still a benchmark, like a not-so-old car, but a 911R is, is a wonderful example of a proper GT car. 
maybe not the quickest, but one of the coolest. I have to pass the ball to Mark because Frank mentioned the 904 Carrera GTS, which is a dream, <laughs> literally. But you drove it for a spin. Tell us, did you have sticky fingers? Uh, yeah, I was lucky to drive the car. And um, I think, you know, as you just touched on there, that as soon as, you know, the stable of history that we have there, it just takes you straight back to the journey that the brand has gone on, the smells, the lack of technology, which was clearly at its time absolutely pioneering and trailblazing. But obviously, you know, when you submerge yourself into that environment now or that sort of type of car, you're like, okay, this is a, a bit of a time warp, but you have absolute respect for the engineers, for the drivers, for the journey that, as I say, that the brand went on. And I think that the style and the tooling and all of the things that they had to deal with and still be competitive and still race those type of cars in a very different way, as, as Frank touched on. You know, the other brands were going out in a very different fashion, but Porsche went about it in a very nimble, agile, really reliable, and that was a very easy car to use. And I felt that as soon as I got in it, you know, just the ergonomics, the steering position, the clutch, you know, the gearbox, everything was just driver friendly, but you want to put it up on its tippy toes and, and get it on the limit and it still lets you do that. So that's the beautiful thing about Porsche in general is that the envelope of the cars has always been very, very big, where some of our British friends, like back then, obviously, they probably had no brakes after a few laps. And that was something that they had to deal with, where Porsche, they had plenty of brakes because the cars are beautifully light. In general, whether it's Ferrari or Porsche, what do the history and the origins of a brand mean to race drivers like you, Mark? Well, a lot. I think that any driver, if you're competing at the highest level, whether you've gone through F1, whether you've raced at the highest level at Le Mans, you know, we all have a tremendous affinity for what's gone before us. And I think that the drivers, we're just all ears. We sit down and listen to the legends. And, you know, that's something which we love, you know, hearing the stories and the bravery, of course, the danger involved, which was incredibly, you know, at the forefront of their minds when they were competing, obviously. So that was amazing. So the sport has just changed so much and the track designs and all those things help As engineers from Porsche, they've had to design something different as well because the rules of engagement have changed so much. So I think when we look back, you know, I'm not a guy that really looks back too much, but I do like to look back and particularly for a brand like Porsche, the journey that they've gone on and the sheer the bravery about going and never shying away from a challenge, you know, all the cars. And that's why, you know, there's been so many over the decades in the stable of GT cars, which is what we're talking about today, whether it's the GT1 whether it's the Carrera GT, you know, all, you know, some of the hero cars of those time and then GT3, GT2s and all the rest, they have that racing in them, the racetrack origins, and they're absolutely the thoroughbreds of racehorses and they represent the brand so well. We are going to talk about GT cars in more detail, but first let's listen to a few facts. The GT stands for Gran Turismo and can therefore be loosely translated as great ride. They are appropriately comfortable, weight-reduced and well-powered sports cars that are suitable for long-distance racing. Initially, these races were Italian classics, such as the Targa Florio. Today, GT cars are more typically found competing in 24-hour endurance races, for example at Le Mans. At Porsche GT really means a racing car with road approval, in 1956, the 356A 1500 GT Coupé was the first Porsche to receive this special abbreviation. This was later followed by the 904 Carrera GTS, 911 GT2, 911 GT1, 911 GT3 and Carrera GT models, among others. 
911 GT3 cars are production vehicles created in close cooperation with the engineers from Porsche's Motorsport Department at the Weissach Development Center. The first generation was launched in 1999 and was the first road-going sports car to complete the Nürburgring Nordschleife in under eight minutes. The brand new GT3 has just demonstrated its impressive performance there too. In the course of the final setup work, it circled the track 17.5 seconds faster than its predecessor. The stopwatch never lies, Mark said. And last week I discussed the topic of GT myth in the German podcast with Andy Preuninger from Porsche and Jörg Bergmeister, another brand ambassador. And Andy said something interesting about fast laps. He says, on the one side of the medal, there is lots of pressure on race drivers saying, hey, that's the bar, jump over, please. On the flip side of the medal, there is lots of fun that creates a uniqueness, a team spirit. Mark, you have been experiencing fast laps for the whole of your life. How do you see the GT performance on Nordschleife? What is the specialty about for a race driver like you? Well, first of all, what race drivers love is a brand that is not frightened of challenges, you know, and you go to the toughest track in the world for decades and decades and decades. So all of us know that we're invested in cracking a really difficult nut, which is a tough circuit, which has every combination you can think of in terms of vehicle dynamics and top speeds and braking and sheer, the confidence involved of putting that car in that envelope is extremely, extremely demanding. And that's why it's been our backyard to test such vigorous levels. And then you have to have the last little ingredient, which of course is the man behind the wheel or the driver behind the wheel. And that's something which, you know, is it, you're right. It's that emotion, it's the passion, it's the respect of driving such a quick car now. I mean, sub seven minutes, it is just extraordinary how quick that lap time is. And of course, we're very, very proud of that. And the team have put a tremendous effort in, but You don't just go there. We talk about that 17 seconds. That is over time of iteration, iteration, and constantly improving from the previous generation to make sure where we can strip that time out. Now, there is goals, of course, and you want to drop onto some special lap times. Maybe it was 7.02, maybe it was 7.03. Of course, we still would have been happy with that, but it still cracked. It started with a six, which was just truly phenomenal and a great effort by Lars Kern there. But the situation and the marriage I keep talking about between the engineers and the drivers and the trust and something we don't make is tyres. That's one of the only things we don't make, but you think about the trust there. We need those tyres to be beautifully prepared and all of those things which enable us to perform at such a, you know, let's say the bar is, we are the, the brand that has the highest bar and the Nordschleife in across a lot of our, all of our model lines. And Awesome performance. That's why it's had so much press, so much interest, because again, we are giving the opposition headaches in a really authentic way because, you know, talk's cheap. Actions speak louder than words. Go there, put the car on the track, on the hardest track, in the most difficult conditions, and then put the stopwatch in it. And as I said, stopwatch does the business for you. Frank, the marriage between race driver and team. That's interesting. What's your view on it? Mark points it out, and for sure, racing is a lot about this marriage. Engineers, car designers, tires, tires are very important on all the racing series, and then the driver. But at the end of the day, it's exactly like Mark said. For me, and especially in my role as head of motorsport, it was always about making the driver feel that there is trust, that he feels good. If this is an entry, you normally get a result back. 
And at the end of the day, once the driver leaves pit lane, it's in his hands. We can give advices, we can look at data, we know it, how to make it better and to how to manage the traffic and we have nice information on the radio. But it's in the driver's hand. He has to decide. He has to make decisions in less than a second, going left or right or passing or not passing. And the experienced one, and that you can see, and I think that's in endurance racing, if you're a little bit older, you have some more experience. You need just laps and you need hundreds, thousands of laps of racing experience to make a proper judgment. Can I go up or do I have to break? And that makes champions at the end of the day, but also gives the trust back and gives the result back. And... I think you have always to be aware that the driver is hes out there alone. He has to make the decisions. And we have to um, yeah, be thankful for that and also handle it like that. It's not just another number, another name. Sometimes you have the impression some racing teams act like this. I did never do that. Highest respect for the job out there. And, and yeah, make them feel happy and have some fun. <laughs> that also helps. If there is too much pressure on it, it will not work. Like like everywhere in, in professional work, some fun helps. Jörg Bergmeister also told us that there is a safety component in the car because of the balance. Mark, how do you feel the balance of a car that leads to more safety to make faster laps and to give you the confidence to be safe on the road? Yeah, well, naturally, again, you know, with the race history that we have and the way that we want to design the race car to have and the street car to have the driver, the usability of the car to be predictable. And if you have a car that sometimes gives you some little surprises and catches you out every now and again, it's going to be like, okay, it'll knock your, your confidence around a little bit. So you want to make sure that the car is not going to do anything funky or anything that's really surprised you yes i mean we're talking about some seriously seriously quick cars here now that we're producing and to put them on on the limit is is not for everyone but we give them the chance to go up to that limit and operate well underneath it which is fine and even at seven out of ten at six out of ten at five out of ten the car will give you confidence and it'll continue to be there for you but it won't drive itself obviously and that's the great reason that we still love to produce These sports cars because we want people to have a very visceral and a very an emotional attachment to driving the car whether it's in the street or on the track if they want to do some track days or as we call them the track rats they want to go and have some fun then then that's the car for them but balance is crucial and that's something of course that we constantly rely on we have to have that predictability on the brakes you know that the car is what we say plumb you know is driving straight and turning in and, it, and it's got that calm nature about it whatever you know how much pressure you're putting on tires or the suspension or the aerodynamic sort of scenarios of the car so very very important i would say just quickly for example like the gt2 rs the last car that we did that's a pretty tricky car on the track in terms of you know it's got a lot of power it's hard to keep the tire pressures down because it's just a tremendously quick car the balance is maybe not as quite in sync with the gt3 rs because of just the way that the car is designed and and because of it's an absolute missile it's the most power that we have 700 horsepower is hard to tame but it's not for everyone and it's a really really challenging car to drive on the limit but we know the rules it's advertised on the tin that's what says on the tin of gt2 rs and they give it plenty of respect so um even trying to balance a car like that is not for any manufacturer and they struggle but we do our best to balance 700 horsepower as best we can You talked about challenges. Let's switch back about 20 years. Go back in the year 1999. And Mark, you experienced two dramatic accidents in a row at two of your last GT races. 
take us in this period of time? What did you learn out of it? Well, no question about it. It was the toughest weekend of my career, emotionally and professionally. Um, you know, it's not every time that you're in a nasty accident where you think that it might go either way. The windscreens are very thin on those cars. If you go into the trees, then it's very, very dangerous. And I was lucky to walk away from those accidents. But you know, I often refer to this when I talk to people or young children, kids trying to go on to have some racing career in the future, that there's going to be some incredibly tough moments. The junior categories were the toughest moments in my career. When you turn professional, then you're with professional people and you really sync together. And then of course, you've got to be professional and work hard. But the tough moments are really what make you and make you have that resilience and the desire and focus to try and get yourself out of that. So I was unemployed for seven months. Actually, I followed Eddie Jordan, the Formula One driver, to a petrol station and because his PA wouldn't put me through to him. So I said, forget it, I'll follow him to a petrol station and he has to get fuel at some point. So I spoke to him and said, Eddie, give me a chance. And he introduced me to Paul Stoddard, who then gave me a seat in Minardi Formula One team. So I went through a really hard moment there and also on the trust side because at that moment we felt those cars were safe and ultimately they weren't safe. They were letting the drivers down. They were very unpredictable cars because the engine department did quite a poor job on the power. So when you have bad power at Le Mans, you have to make the car very thin on downforce and when the car's low on downforce, then the car is very unstable at high speed. So all those things as a young driver you learn like, okay, we're starting to put ourselves in a scenario that could be quite flaky here. But when you're young, you have to go for it. So yeah, tough learnings. But I think that the measure of getting out of a tricky situation is something that you need to have to be able to do. And also, it's a long flight home, so I didn't want to come home just then. So I had unfinished business. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for the insights, Mark. We stay in the year 1999. The first GT3 was presented in that year. And at that time, Frank, you had just completed your first Porsche years intern, diploma student, doctoral student. So what was these years all about for you? Well, for me, it was starting in the company, highly motivated and learning a lot of things. And it was just the introduction of the 996 generation and a very important step for Porsche. It was a big transition from small sports car manufacturer to, well, with the Boxster, the, the second sports car model line to get out of the crisis and to establish as a brand and as a company again. We already could see the Cayenne on the horizons. Then there was the GT3 and the presentation of the GT3 and the headlines in the newspaper had been, the 911 is back. And that was really the starting point of a wonderful strategy. The essence of a 911 is definitely a GT3. I will never forget in my life this first uh, test ride because I was keen on to get a lap on our track in Weissach and I could convince a guy who had access to a car and he came and we did two laps with a GT3 on the test track in Weissach and it was immediately, it was a complete different feeling. It was the engine sound and everything. Unbelievable experience these days. And it has, if we consider today, it had no power, no downforce, nothing. But it has, and I think that's so important on the GT cars. We talked a lot about lap times and stopwatches, but fun of driving, involvement with the car is also crucial for a GT car. It's not only the lap time, it's also this day-to-day -day usability and this deep involvement you have with the car. You can really enjoy every mile, every kilometer you drive, and it's something that makes you smile. That's a big difference to other cars. Yeah, it sounds like a great journey fulfilling dreams and uh, now the gt3 is in its seventh edition frank what connects the first moments you talked about to the present or how do they differ i think 
Number one, we could keep the essentials, the DNA of the car is still the same. It's driver involvement, it's performance, it's drivability, it's predictable, maybe today a little bit more than it was in the past. The perfection of the car improved a lot. It's razor sharp in driving and I really love this. But the effort in today's environment, in all the rules we have to fulfill in, for worldwide homologation, we have nearly in every market the GT3 is available, is huge. You cannot compare it to what it was um, 20 years ago. The effort we have to take to fulfill emission regulations, noise regulations, uh, safety regulations, everything around, it makes it so complicated to make a car. And electronics is crucial to fulfill, but the philosophy is don't let the driver feel. It must be in the background. It must give you a, a stable background and a platform. But on the main stage, there must be the car and the drivability of the car and the involvement with the car. That's why we offer the stick shift, why we still stay with the naturally aspirated engine, what is completely crazy if I look at the effort and everything, but it makes the car so unique. And we carry over the racing technology, the stiff well-strain, single butterfly bodies, and everything we put on technology-wise, we are still revving 9,000 RPM, what makes the car completely different to everything else you can buy and that makes it so special and it, it still feels as a modern interpretation of what the journey started with 20 years ago. Mark, let's take a jump into the future. Sustainability and electrification of powertrains. I mean, you were in the 2015 World Drivers' Championship and yeah, you nailed it with the Porsche 919 Hybrid. Give us an impression what combustion engines combined with hybrid or powerful hybrid are all about? Well, I must say I was a little bit skeptical when I heard, you know, I knew I was coming to Porsche. I was finishing my Formula One career in 2013. And we're talking about this very small two-liter, four-cylinder, you know, turbo engine. I'm like, wow, how small is this engine? You know, and then I'm like, it's got some electric power. I'm like, mega, cool. I said, that's going to be interesting. And I remember going straight from the Interlagos track of my last Formula One race, and I went straight to Portimao. And I remember my first lap was at night, and I drove out of the pit lane, and I was straight away on the e-motor on the front axle, just pulling me down the pit lane. And I'm like, this is unbelievably unique. I wasn't ready for that. And then when I got going, the four-wheel drive capability was just absolutely just astonishing how much power the front e-motor had. And of course, we had to sync that then with the combustion engine. So I think that... Whether it was a fluke or not, but of course, by regulation, we had an eight megajoule, which was obviously incredibly optimistic at the time, 800 volt battery, again, phenomenal, which now we have in the Taycan at the moment, which we're proud of. But when I talk about the fluke, you know, having a very small combustion engine and then having to sync that with basically a sledgehammer of a serious amount of power from the electrical component, we had to then blend this type of power and syncing all of this together was a tremendous journey and a tremendous learning process for the guys and for the drivers and some headaches. But ultimately, that was the toughest and the hardest lesson for us to understand how could we get the performance out of this thing in an efficient way, in a safe way to drive on the limits and all the rest of it for us to be consistent in that type of vehicle. So I think that all of us drivers were of course, so proud of that technology to be involved in it because, of course, it was absolutely mind-blowing. I know we did, I mean, Frank was involved in 2010 with the 911. We had the hybrid there as well and the Nord Schleifer. So it wasn't our first attempt, of course, in hybrid racing cars. But in terms of the the experience around that was truly extraordinary. And then, of course, now it goes into the street cars, which is not 
on our GT cars, which Frank maybe can allude to at some other point in the future. But at the moment, um, we have the Taycan and the rest of it in our EV position is getting stronger. But racing gave us confidence and the drivers loved it. And we're not easy to please. We are very fussy when it comes to, you know, converting onto new technologies and disrupting something that's very, very different. And it was a great experience and something that we all will never forget in our lives. And we're proud that we sort of turbocharged that confidence within the company to try new things. Great experience, Mark was talking about. Frank, how do you think the topic of electrification of powertrains will develop in racing and on the road? Well, in racing, it's maybe easier. We will see more electrification in the future. Also to have this playing ground for the engineers to learn things. And as Mark said, I think the learnings from the 919 had been really great. And now it's up to us to make again the transfer possible. All the learnings from the 919 and the technology we will maybe find one day in a streetcar. On a GT car, it gets more difficult, as I talked about. That's a lot about the feeling and the involvement. If we can keep this feeling, if we can keep this involvement, electrification of the powertrain, nothing against it, but it's always a big fight against weight. Weight is crucial for these cars. It's not only power-to-weight uh, relation as we have the tires, and the tires depend on absolute weight. So that's really very tricky to make this happen. We did a 918 Spider that was three and a half years fight against weight. I think the outcome was really good. But if I look at the technology we're using with everything made in carbon fiber, it does not fit also in the price range of a GT car where we expect it and also for the number of cars we want to do. So tricky. I have nothing on the table at the moment where we can say, yeah, this is exactly right. And we have to be very, very careful to not just put a powerful powertrain in and say, that's it now. It's a GT car because it has more power. We really have to keep the DNA. And that gives us some heartaches. But we are not giving up. Good mindset. You said keep this feeling and keep the DNA. I want to jump to combustion engines and the topic of e-fuels. We started a pilot project recently to get deeper into the production and also the usage of e-fuels. How do you assess this, Frank? As we are part of the transportation sector, we have, and I think that's the task also for the engineers, to look for solutions and to bring down CO2 emissions. One is definitely the electric car, as we can use sustainable green current to charge them. But we have also an existing fleet and we have special cars and it takes just time to make this transformation from combustion engines. I'm talking worldwide. We are producing 80 million cars a year. So that just takes 20 years to replace all the cars. I think we do not have 20 years to wait and see. I think we have to hurry up a little bit. And the synthetic fuels are the main driver for the existing fleet because you can just use another fuel and you bring down the CO2 emission by significant amounts. For sure, you have to look at the global scale on it. Where do you have the highest wind and sun? I do not believe that we can put solar panels in the south of the Black Forest and solve our world energy problems. A global effort, and I think that's what Porsche is doing. We are looking at it globally, not just a local solution. And so we can bring down with this fuel the CO2 impact of the transportation sector. Everybody's talking about price, yes, for sure. 
but CO2 has a cost and I think we should spend every money to save this world. And for sports cars, it would be a very, very good solution to make these cars, and they are, I consider them also as part of our culture, to save them and to bring them to the future with a very good solution. Engineers always look for answers, and so do race drivers. You look for solutions on the racetrack. And now you need this expertise because I want to play a little game with both of you. It's all about the engine sounds of famous Porsche cars. So I play the sounds first and then I raise the questions. So three sounds, please listen. Mark Frank, behind which engine sound is the new 911 GT3 hiding? Mark, I think one of these cars was a race car as the shifting was very short. Yeah, the I think middle the middle one. one was a car that I know well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But there had been two normally aspirated engines. So uh, it's not so easy. But one sounds more like a 911. Do you want to listen to it again? Oh, I think, um, well, maybe C. I would also opt for C. Yeah. Right. Beautiful. For sure. It was answer 3992 GT3. And the second one was the 919 hybrid. So the Le Mans. Your race company car. car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mark. Done plenty of laps in that baby. And for all the listeners, the first sound was the Cayman GT4, by the way. So now we turn historical to a very special car. I play the sound and then you tell me if you have an idea which car is hiding behind. Mark, guess what? I'm in trouble. Um, yeah, it's old. <laughs> it sounds old. That's true. And, and then imagine your <laughs> sticky fingers back then. Yes, I know, I know. Yeah, you're giving me a ginormous hint. Well, Frank can give the answer, I think. Uh, It's difficult. Mark, all these cars are older than we are, so <laughs> how, how, how could we know? <laughs> It's... Has it got a zero in the middle? Yes. Oh, Frank can fill oh, the rest yeah. in. <laughs> And it's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> is it a 904 Carrera GTS? Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It's really amazing. I could have given you some options, but I didn't want to because you were experts, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I left this open, but yeah, it is the 904. Tough master, yeah, tough yeah. master, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we are going for challenges, that's okay. <laughs> sure. So, I have another one. Which of the two sounds is the first 911 GT3 from 1999? And which is a 911 Turbo? From an expert's point of view, What is the audible difference between a natural aspirated engine and a turbo engine? Frank. 
do you think? Well, I think as the difference is so big, <laughs> the first one is the normally aspirated engine. And for me, it's always a turbo reflects a mighty car. And in the case of a 911 Turbo S, it's a super mighty car. This is the best daily driver you can have. It is no better car. Either it, there's snow or heavy rain or sunny country roads. A 911 Turbo S is a mighty answer to that. The normally aspirated engine is not mighty, it's tiny, but it's this high revving, high emotional sound and this very, very special sound. It's, yeah, there's nothing else in the world. <laughs> Mark, do you want to add on to this? Yeah, I'm with Frank. I mean, actually, the first Porsche I bought was a 997 Turbo S. Is my daily, in complete contrast to the brand that I was driving with at the time, but that's another topic. But loved that car. I thought to myself, why have I been buying this other rubbish in the meantime? You know, this was an absolute, you know, in my head, a total game changer for a daily, as Frank touched on, and the four-wheel drive capability and just the versatility was still, of course, everything that a Porsche is. We know that in the seating position and all the rest of it. So yeah, love that. I have some GT3 cars. I love them. I love it when the needle is going past 12 o'clock because that's when they come alive, obviously, and that's not always easy to do on the street, but you can do it, particularly in your country. You can do it quite a bit, which is beautiful. But, you know, whether it's my favorite GT3 RS, which is the 997 4 liter, which I'm very, very fortunate to have one, I love driving that car. And it's tiny, nimble, and it's a piece of jewelry and I love it but of course uh, GD3s for me are my favorite RS cars that we make they're my favorites and my daily the Turbo S is still by the way was that a race car the audio for the GD3 it sounded like a race car and it was a street car for the Turbo S because we don't have a Turbo S race car so it's pretty unfair battle as well I think that was a 996 GT3 they had the noise emissions these days had been different to today okay <laughs> okie dokie you managed to jump over every hurdle I put around. So well done, Mark and Frank. Now it's your turn, dear listeners. You once again have the chance to win in this episode of our Porsche podcast. Porsche AG is giving away three model cars of the brand new 911 GT3 on a scale of 1 to 43. The competition will run from now until the release date of the next Porsche podcast episode. Simply send an email with your answer to our question to podcast at porsche.de. Porsche will choose the winner from all correct entries. Anyone aged 18 or older may take part. You can find the entry details in the Porsche Newsroom at newsroom.porsche.com slash podcasts, along with a few clues. Good luck! Now all that's missing is the question and Mark and Frank are not allowed to help. Here it comes. What is the exact lap time of the new 911 GT3 on the complete notch life of the Nürburgring? Simply send your answer by email to podcast at porsche.de. We are curious. Mark and Frank, we now come to the conclusion. Today's podcast episode is coming to an end. Time flew by. What is the GT myth today and what will it look for instance, in 50 years, Frank, let's take this look into the future. Will it last the same? Will it be even better? What is your view on it? 50 years is really difficult. If I'm honest, I will say, no, they will not be still with us. 10 years is already difficult as the automotive world 
is changing so quick and so much at the moment that it's not really predictable what will happen looking at markets. If I look at the customer wish, I would clearly say yes. Customers also want this in the future, in the next 10 years, 20 years. And I can promise you we do everything to keep it alive. Whatever it takes, we will do it. But the boundaries are getting tougher. I talked about worldwide homologation as this is part of our daily job. Doesn't make it easier. It's a niche product, but I think it's really worth every effort to take to keep it alive, to bring it to the future. And we do, as I said, whatever it takes. The beauty of a niche product, Mark, what is your look into the future? Well, I think 50 years, I know I'll be 94. So I will remember <laughs> that uh, Mark, I will still have in my head. <laughs> Yeah, let's do a podcast then, mate, if they still do podcasts then, because I think it's going to be very different. But maybe Porsche, I mean, for sure, we have to be off the ground at some point in 50 years. So um, we need to be doing a, a bit of vertical stuff. But I will never forget, whatever side I am of the ground, I will never forget the 9,000 RPM revs that we have in our life now, because that's something that you never forget. So uh, I'm stoked that I experienced it in the middle of my life, 50 years, my God. I'm happy to get to 94 and to be able to remember what <laughs> what I did at this point in my life. But that's optimistic, but we can focus on now and we're absolutely, you know, we don't rest on our laurels. We're hitting it out of the park. We've got a beautiful brand and the cars are absolutely iconic and we continue to improve a masterpiece and we should be happy with that in the GT sector. Well, Mark and Frank, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it and uh, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please send them via email to podcast at porsche.de. I'm looking forward to our next episode and I hope you will join me again. Until then, stay safe and goodbye. Thanks. Thanks.